thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Well, it's great to have you join me for this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, I want to follow up on how I ended last week's podcast. You, you may remember that I've been talking about the fact that the idea of covenant and that the idea of covenant has been lost largely within the Christian worldview that looks at moral points rather than the context for the making of moral points in our culture and and how the concept of covenant has been lost in our cosmology uh, has actually been reflected in our United States Constitution, and as I noted last week, it's also reflected in a case pending in the Iowa Supreme Court regarding abortion. And so today, that's what I want to look at, is this concept of covenant in relation to constitutions and a case currently pending before the Iowa Supreme Court in the case of abortion. Now, You may recall, I think it was like two episodes ago, I told you how the United States Supreme Court, in the final paragraph of its 1992 decision, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that upheld the right to abortion in Roe, they described, the majority of the court, described the nature of our Constitution with these words, and let me repeat them. Our Constitution is a covenant running from the first generation of Americans to us and then to future generations. It is a coherent succession. We talked about the importance of that idea of coherence, and and you'll see us talking about that in a sense uh, again today without using those words. The court continued, Each generation must learn anew that the Constitution's written terms embody ideas and aspirations that must survive more ages than one. We accept our responsibility not to retreat from interpreting the full meaning of the covenant in light of all our precedents. And, of course, in retreating from the idea of a constitution as a covenant that, like those in the Bible, runs to future generations, and retreating from all of his other precedents, the court said there was a liberty right in the 14th Amendment to abortion, to which the uh, life of the unborn had to yield. So you recall in that episode, we, we talked about how the Supreme Court, in essence, made such fine statements and then violated every one of them. And we're going to see the same thing taking place uh, in Iowa in connection with the right to abortion the Iowa Supreme Court found in its constitution back in 2018, five years ago. And I have to commend my my good counterparts in Iowa that notwithstanding the state Supreme Court's decision back in 2018, they passed a heartbeat bill anyway. I think it was a year ago, or I don't remember exactly when, but uh, more recently. And, And that prior decision is now being revisited in a case that's challenging the constitutionality of that newly enacted heartbeat bill, and it's 
pending in the Iowa Supreme Court. In fact, I think the briefs of the state are due um, today, or at least maybe by Monday. But anyway, I think that taking a look at these two situations, what's what's gone on in the United States Supreme Court and what's gone on in Iowa will give us a sobering look at what happens when covenants are made and broken. Now, as I said in a previous podcast, uh, may have been, uh, again, a week or two ago, God takes national covenants seriously. And he assured the people of Israel that the covenant it made with death in place of the one of life graciously bestowed on them by God was not going to protect them when the flood of death came. He said it would be a terror to them. And you may recall we looked at that in the context of Isaiah 28, and I'm not going to repeat it here. So let me move on, though, to what the I Supreme Court has said on this issue of abortion back in 2018. And if we have time today, um, but if not next week, I'll get into how the issue of abortion is presently being handled by the Ohio Attorney General and what I'm working on with some friends there in Iowa in regard to a brief I hope to file in that case. But I I think this is going to be a good case study, as they would call it in academics, that's responsive to a listener's question about how do we go about restoring a biblical cosmology to our law and to our society. So let's start with some of the things the Iowa Supreme Court said in its 2018 decision, and let's subject them to both a biblically informed and historically accurate um, thinking, okay? Now, the 2018 Iowa Supreme Court decision, uh, finding a right to abortion, began as follows, and let me just quote it for the context. In this appeal, we must decide if the constitutional right of women to choose to terminate a pregnancy is unreasonably restricted by a statute that prohibits the exercise of the right for a period of 72 hours after going to a doctor. In making this decision, we recognize the continuing debate in society over abortion and acknowledge the right of government to reasonably regulate the constitutional right of women to terminate a pregnancy. In carefully considering the case, we conclude the statute enacted by our legislature, while intended as a reasonable regulation, violates both the due process and equal protection clauses of the Iowa Constitution because its restrictions on women are not narrowly tailored to serving a compelling interest of the state. The state has a legitimate interest in informing women about abortion, but the means used under the statute enacted does not meaningfully serve that objective. So, in a sense, they're going to sit here as policy uh, advisors and weigh the, the analysis and the decisions and the factors that the legislature made to find out if the law is unconstitutional. And then they said, and somewhat rightly, here we are called upon by Iowans to review an act of the legislature they believe infringes upon Iowa's constitutional guarantees of due process and equal protection. The obligation to resolve this grievance and interpret the Constitution lies with this court. Now, before I go further, let me explain why I said that statement was somewhat right. Now, I can't get into their heads. I'm just looking at what they said and the fact that they think there's a right to abortion in the state constitution. Notice that the court said it was being called upon by Iowans, 
to to resolve a grievance, to find out if, if, if a law is violating their rights. But it was actually being called on by Planned Parenthood, a corporation, who the court noted put before it five witnesses and an affidavit of a domestic violence expert. I don't know if those six persons were Iowans, but the reason I want to point this out is that no court ever makes a law for Iowans. Courts have no power to make laws for Iowans, nor does any court in any state have the power to make laws for the citizens of that state. Courts exercise only judgment to decide to whom it should award a judgment in the case of a dispute or render a verdict in favor of. It could not enter a judgment for Iowans, only Planned Parenthood. Now, I've talked about the limited nature of the judicial power, and I'm not going to get into it today, other than to commend my counterparts in Iowa for not letting that 2018 judgment prevent them from enacting a heartbeat bill and bringing the issue back through the judicial system. You see, that's exactly how it should be done. And few states, including my own state, rarely, if ever, do that. I mean, right now I'm trying to get the Tennessee legislature to pass a statute that says common law marriage has never been held unconstitutional by any court, so we're going to recognize a common law marriage between a man and a woman. And I can't even get the Tennessee legislature to to enact a law like that, even though the Supreme Court hasn't ruled on it. Just anything close to ruling on marriage has them skittering away. So kudos to Iowa for going ahead and passing this heartbeat bill. Now, let me continue with what the court said, and this is where things get really, really interesting. The Iowa Supreme Court noted that in the recorded debates of the Constitutional Convention of the State of Iowa from 1857, uh, keep in mind that, that date, this is an old constitution, right, that the constitution was, quote, for maintenance of her, referring to Iowans, dearest and most precious rights. Now, that's in 1857. And I applaud that sentiment. It's in keeping with the principles and the concepts of common law and their relationship to constitutions, including what I've said in the past about the U.S. Constitution. And then the court continued by noting that in, in, in those records of the debates that, quote, the annals of the world furnish many instances in which the freest and most enlightened governments that have ever existed upon earth have been gradually undermined and actually destroyed in consequence of the people's rights not being guarded by written constitutions. Now, that's a fascinating statement. That nations have been destroyed because people's rights have not been guarded by written constitutions. Uh, there's a statement, is it not, about the consequences of breaking a covenant that a nation makes among its members? that this is how we're going to govern ourselves, just like you know, people in the Mayflower wrote in their compact, in the name of Almighty God, under our dread sovereign King James, or whatever it was, you know, here we go. A covenant compact, you might say, among those pilgrims at Plymouth. I, again, commend the court, but, but why, I think we need to ask, are written constitutions so important? Why are these written covenants so important? And here's the reason. Because they are positive law enactments 
declaring in perpetuity, at least until amended by the people, the rights the people already have, which I've said repeatedly, the leaders in our nation, at least in 1857, and of course when we were formed in uh, 1789 with the adoption of the U.S. Constitution, they understood those enactments to be found, or grounded, I should say, in the common law. And Iowa is a common law state. In other words, common law is the jurisprudential foundation for all law in Iowa and really the United States across our country, except for Louisiana, where all law is legislatively enacted law. Okay? So, so saying common law is our jurisprudential foundation is sort of like saying the Bible is our theological foundation, our worldview foundation, right? That's, that's the foundation. And, of course, from a biblical worldview, you have to figure out, you know, what, what is right or wrong to do in this instance. But, but, but that's what I mean by common law is, the, is our jurisprudential foundation for all law. Never, may I say, lose sight of the distinction between common law and civil law and the relationship between the two. Again, common law is the foundation upon which the civil or the enacted law is based in every state and in the United States with the exception of Louisiana. Even many lawyers that I know are much like I was coming out of law school. They may give lip service to the word common law. They may acknowledge it, thinking of it more as some kind of relic of history but not particularly relevant to the present day. I mean, I hate to say, most of the lawyers that I know on a national stage dismiss common law, or at least the ones that that work in the field of policy and trying to win cases in front of the Supreme Court. They don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. Uh, and, and that's a huge mistake because even the United States Supreme Court in recent years has emphasized the role of common law in interpreting the U.S. Constitution. And that carries over into our state constitutions where we have common law states. Now, we're going to come back to this when we look at how the current lawsuit's being handled and how I'm trying to work on it. But I, but I want to proceed with how the Iowa Supreme Court understands constitutions. And you'll see... Uh, parallels to how the United States Supreme Court has thought of its constitution or its covenant, our covenant, our national covenant, in the context of its abortion and sodomy and, and marriage decisions. With a great rhetorical flourish, the Iowa Supreme Court essentially wiped out everything it just said with these words. Iowa's constitution is a living and vital instrument. Well, when you read that, you have to say, well, live in what way? Uh, did the court mean uh, it lives by taking the words used in 1857 as they were then understood and is embodying a fundamental principle and that, that's enduring and unchanging and letting it live by analogous application of that fundamental principle to persons in present context? Is that what they meant? Well, I, well, no. The uh, Supreme Court said this. Our constitutional doctrines are not necessarily static, and our analysis instead considers current 
prevailing standards that draw their meaning from the evolving standards that mark the progress of a maturing society. Well, that sounds awfully heady and uh, sophisticated. But think about what they said. We don't look at the past or what the words meant at the time to discern the principle involved. I know we have evolving standards, which is to say there are no enduring standards, and, and, and they're making past standards irrelevant. In fact, those evolving standards are established by our now prevailing standards, and that's what we will apply. I mean, what kind of nonsense is that, that the rights of the people once had, how in the world are they being guarded by a written constitution, the meaning of which is dependent on the majority views, the prevailing views, from time to time? What is really they're saying is that those standards of the past have to fall prey to whatever the majority now think rights ought to be. I mean, that's what the word prevailing means, isn't it? The standards of the majority of the holders of power or votes or whatever it is, or the culture, at the moment. There is no enduring fundamental right that's being guarded. Now, I'm going to say here, I appreciate my friends in Iowa took to the ballot box and removed some, if not all, those justices who joined in that decision. And that was some major work and kudos to them. But as I now examine what those justices said, I think the people of Iowa should have removed them, not just for their conclusion about abortion, I mean, that was bad, but for their fundamentally wrong understanding of law and constitutions. Now, let, let me qualify that for just a moment. I'm not saying removing the justices for the decision itself wasn't the right thing to do. In fact, when Tennessee's Supreme Court did the exact same thing in the year 2000 to our Constitution, uh, 18 years earlier, I didn't think of impeaching them. What I could have done under the Tennessee's Constitution, and I was a sitting state senator, so I could have raised a big stink about it. I didn't think about that. Instead, I thought only of amending our state constitution to reverse the decision. And I spent 12 years or so doing that, and thank God it happened. But Tennessee's justices, just as those in Iowa, who by their very own words about a living constitution, denominated themselves as believers in arbitrary law, which our founders said was the foundation for tyranny. Now, Again, let me, let me qualify all this. I understand that urging people to vote against justices because they're lawless and their lawlessness is, in principle, the road to tyranny would have probably fallen on the deaf ears in Iowa. Uh, maybe they're far more sophisticated than they would be in Tennessee, but it would have fallen on deaf ears here in Tennessee and, and probably in every state of the nation, most likely. And kicking them off the court for an abortion decision, straightforward, and thank God that happened. But here's my point. The fact that the public wouldn't understand that argument and for that reason itself remove a justice is, to me, symptomatic of the fundamental nature of the problem we have in our country. And things are not going to change direction in any fundamental or substantial way until that fundamental and substantial problem is attacked and addressed. And... Well, I, I can see we're not going to get to how we should do that in this week's episode, but I will next week. But as a prelude to that, I want to now try to demonstrate that those in our founding generation 
would have understood that abortion decisions by any court, declaring it a right by the supreme law in a state or in our nation, was arbitrary law and tending towards tyranny. Now, how am I going to establish that? Let me again turn to our good friend, William Blackstone, in his commentaries on the laws of England that the Supreme Court repeatedly cites and has cited for over a hundred years, well over a hundred years, the 200 years of our whole country, and particularly in the Dobbs decision reversing Roe and the Bruin decision upholding the Second Amendment, both of which were in June of 2022. Now, here's what he wrote, that our rights were, quote, no other than either that residuum of natural liberty, which is not required by the laws of society to be sacrificed to public convenience, or else those civil privileges which society hath engaged to provide in lieu of the natural liberties so given up by individuals. Now, what is he saying there about this residuum of natural liberty which isn't required by society to be sacrificed to public convenience except for uh, the civil privileges. Well, what he's saying is, and let me just put it in this particular context, life was one of the fundamental rights of all human beings. Possessing it would have been one of our natural liberties, okay? And we shouldn't be required to sacrifice it just to public convenience, but to the extent we do sacrifice it, then we're given certain civil privileges in lieu of that natural liberty that is given up. And, and that's exactly where we get the due process of law requirement in the Iowa Constitution and in the 14th Amendment. That due process of law requirement is predicated on the fact that there is already a right to life that cannot be sacrificed for convenience. But for the sake of society, when a person steals another person's property or takes their life or imprisons them, for example, denies them liberty of locomotion and movement, well, uh, the law says, yeah, if there's a law that says you shouldn't kill people or you shouldn't abduct them and uh, you shouldn't steal their property, then you can forfeit your life. But we're going to, in lieu of, of that absolute right. We're, we're going to give you the civil privilege that you can't lose it or be deprived of it without due process of law. You see? So the 14th Amendment is what Blackstone is saying in action. Now, Blackstone continued, and in what uh, follows, I think you'll see how I get to the suggestion that abortion represents arbitrary law because there's a right to life. And it sets us on the path to tyranny, to oppression by the government. So let's take a look at, at how that works. Again, Blackstone wrote that fundamental rights, he said, may, quote, be reduced to three principal or primary articles. The right of personal security, which he later defines as a person's right to their life, their limb, their body, their health, their reputation, who I am as a person. The right of personal liberty, which is locomotion, movement, not to be falsely imprisoned or withheld, uh, abducted, those kinds of things. And the right of private property, which should be pretty self-explanatory to us still. And then he gives the reason for why 
These three are primary or principal, sometimes called absolute or fundamental, and I'll use those words sometimes interchangeably. And this is why. Because, he says, there is no other known method of compulsion or abridging man's natural free will but by an infringement or diminution of one or the other of these important rights. So when you begin to diminish what what rights a person has or begin to redefine what property can be or what liberty can be, you're on the way towards government compulsion. The stage is set. That's why I said it's the path to tyranny. Now, he goes on to say this. Therefore, the preservation of these, the right to personal security, to liberty, personal liberty and property, inviolate, holding them inviolate, without, for example, due process of law, may justly be said to include the preservation of our civil immunities in their largest and most extensive sense. These things are very, very important. The right to life, part of the right of personal security. And so when any human life can be said to not be the life of a person, as for instance that word used in the 14th Amendment, then you're on your way to denying some human beings the equal protection of the laws, which is why that right is spelled out in the 14th Amendment also. Because you see, the reason for that language, the reason for the due process of law with respect to life, the reason for the equal protection, is that in Dred Scott versus Sanford, the 1857 decision by the Supreme Court that pulled us further into the Civil War and the 14th Amendment that followed, the, the Supreme Court said, and I quote here, that persons of the colored race were at that time, 1857, considered as a subordinate and inferior class of beings who had been subjugated by the dominant race and whether emancipated or not, yet remained subject to their authority, that of the dominant race, and notice this, and had no rights or privileges but such as those who held the power and the government might choose to grant them. So, you see, that's exactly what Tennessee and Iowa and the United States Supreme Court have done to certain persons having human life, namely the unborn, vis-a-vis -vis other persons, a postnatal woman who's carrying a child. The person who possesses human life that's still in the womb is treated as a subordinate and inferior class of being, even though what constitutes the pregnant woman of being is human life. So, how should those of us who embrace this concept of covenant as part of a biblical cosmology and this understanding of the person and fundamental absolute rights begin to address this situation in a way that would begin to restore that cosmology in our law and our culture that's been lost as evidenced by the Supreme Court's abortion decisions and what the Iowa Supreme Court said in 2018. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, 
please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.